So, uh, louder? Somebody says louder. Right. You know, uh, I, I teach this large class at Chapel Hill. Maybe uh, sometimes I have 300 students in it. And I'll always start class by saying, can you hear me in the back? And inevitably, somebody will say, no. I'm teaching this class this semester. Uh, it's, it, I, have, I have about 250 students in, in this semester. Uh, and uh, I enjoy teaching New Testament uh, in that kind of environment. Uh, I also teach small classes, but it's, it's not like Dickinson College where probably every class is small. Uh, we have big classes as well. So uh, the deal is my, my class on the New Testament is a little bit challenging because I'm teaching in the Bible Belt. And, uh, well, my views don't happen to correspond uh, with those of the students who are taking the class. And so uh, the, the, uh, the students in the class, they, we have really good students in Chapel Hill. I mean, they, they, are, they are really good. Uh, most of them have a firmer commitment to the Bible than knowledge about the Bible. And so the, uh, the first day of class, uh, I, uh, I, every year, I hand out my syllabus and explain that this, this course on the New Testament will be different from probably what you've experienced before. Because most of these students, if they've had any study of the Bible at all, it's been in, in uh, church and in, and in Sunday school. And I explained that this isn't a church, it's not a Sunday school, this is a secular research university, and we'll be approaching the New Testament from a historical perspective, rather than from a theological perspective, or a religious perspective, or a devotional perspective. This, is, this will be a historical perspective, and so I explain what the difference is, and, um, and you know, they, they get on board fairly quickly. So that, that the first day I spend half my time talking about the syllabus for the class, and then, to the surprise of my students, I ask them to pull out a piece of paper and a pen because I'm going to give them a pop quiz. Now, they think this is very odd indeed that I'd be giving them a pop quiz before I've taught them anything. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I give this quiz because it's, it, is, it involves basic Bible knowledge, and I want to know, going into the semester, how much my students know about the Bible. I also want them to know how much they know about the Bible. <laughs> and so this is a very basic factual quiz. It's not, it's not hard, it's not complicated, it's, and it has almost nothing to do with the class because the class is about scholarship. And this is just basic Bible information that you would think anybody who studied the Bible at all would have some, they would, they would know these things. So, uh, so I start off, the, so there are 11 questions on this quiz. And I tell my students that if anyone in here gets eight of these right, I'll buy you dinner at the Armadillo Grill. So uh, I think I owe four students this semester dinner out of my 250. Um, and as I said, the questions aren't hard. The first question is, how many books are in the New Testament? Now, uh, this knocks off about over half the class. Uh, and it turns out the answer is easy. Uh, the answer is 27. Now you say, why is that easy? It's easy because of this. You think about the Bible, you think about God. You think about the New Testament, you think about the Christian God. When you think about the Christian God, you think about the Trinity. And what is 27? Three to the third power. Three times three times three. It's a miracle. 
And so we go from there. So the next question is, in what language were these books written? Now, this is an interesting question. About half of my students typically think that the answer is Hebrew. Now, I, I don't know why they think. I, I think it's because they watch, they'll occasionally see a show on Discovery or History Channel about Jesus, and they're always flashing up these Hebrew manuscripts in the background. And so people think Hebrew. about. But no, that's wrong. That's the, the Hebrew Bible, the, the Christian Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but not the New Testament. Now, normally, I only have four or five students who think that the answer is English. <laughs> um, so, uh, but, but, the, but the answer is Greek, uh, and I explain why, why these books are written in Greek, about how Greek was the lingua franca of the Roman Empire. And so I'm using this, I'm using this quiz as a way of, of teaching them a few things uh, as well. Uh, and, so, and so the quiz goes. Well, I mean, I, I do throw in a few curveballs. <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't want to buy any dinners. <laughs> and so, so I, uh, one of my questions is, what was the Apostle Paul's last name? And inevitably, I get somebody say, of Tarsus. <laughs> uh, right, Paul of Tarsus, right. So uh, the, the thing about this question is, uh, I, I, I want to explain to them that people in the ancient world, most people didn't have last names unless you were a very upper crust uh, uh, aristocrat in Rome, you, you basically had one name. That's why people in the New Testament, you have so many people with the same name and they have to be identified in some way. And so you get you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus. They tell you which Mary it is. Mary Magdalene, Mary from Bethany. You know, you have different, because they have all, all these names. Uh, and so, because ancient people don't have last names. So I have to tell my students this because a lot of my students think that Jesus Christ, <laughs> and so I have to tell them, you know, it's not Jesus Christ born to Joseph and Mary Christ. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not his last name. So, anyway, so, uh, well, apart from this kind of basic information, I try to introduce my students to a historical approach to the New Testament, which is very different from uh, uh, the approach that they've learned in their, in their religious upbringing, many of them. Of course, not all my students are conservative Christians. I mean, I get all sorts of people. I get, I get Jews, sometimes I get Muslims, and I get atheists and agnostics, and, but, but the majority of students are conservative Christians, and they, they've never heard of a historical approach to the New Testament, and the historical approach is very different. So uh, in this lecture tonight, I want to talk about uh, what historians uh, what, what historians have to grapple with when they're dealing with trying to reconstruct who Jesus really was. Now, it, it's not that hard to figure out what the New Testament says about Jesus. All you have to do is read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can see what they say about Jesus. But is that the same thing as knowing what the historical Jesus was all about? Uh, that's the topic of this lecture. And I'm going to explain why it's actually hard for people to know what the historical Jesus was all about. Uh, I've given a subtitle to this uh, lecture, which is, Can We Trust the New Testament Portrayal of the Historical Jesus? Can We Trust the, the New Testament Portrayal of the Historical Jesus? Let me uh, take a minute or two to explain the subtitle. First, uh, the word we. So by we, I mean those of us in the 21st century who have a post-enlightenment understanding of the world. Uh, we, can we trust the New Testament? I'm not asking whether the New Testament would have been considered a good historical source in the first century or the second century. I'm asking, can, can we today 
understand the New Testament to present a historically reliable portrait of Jesus or not? Can we trust it? When I'm using the word trust here, I'm not asking, does the New Testament allow us to have faith in Jesus? I don't mean trust like that. I mean, can, when, when you read in the New Testament that Jesus did X, Y, and Z, can we trust that Jesus really did X, Y, and Z? Or if the New Testament says that Jesus said this, can we trust that, in fact, Jesus said that? Which is very basic, like you would ask for any historical source. If you had, if you had historical documentation for Napoleon, you'd want to read the source and figure out whether you could trust it or not, or whether, in fact, there was legendary aspects to it. And so it's the same, same issue with Jesus. So can we trust? And I'm talking about the historical Jesus, the man himself. Uh, there was a man, Jesus. He did live. He uh, was in Palestine in the first century. He was a Jew. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Those, the, those are historical facts that I think we can establish as certain. But that's what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about the historical Jesus. Um, I'm not talking about uh, does John give us an important portrayal of Jesus? Yes, I think John does give us an important portrayal of Jesus. Is that the same thing as the historical Jesus? No, probably not. I'm going to be arguing, as you'll see in this lecture. So uh, let me say something about my grappling with this issue, because my views today are not the views that I uh, always had. Um, I'm a firm believer in people uh, changing their minds about things. I think if you're unwilling to change your mind about something, then uh, probably you're just being uh, stubborn. <laughs> and I don't think we should be intellectually stubborn. I think we should be open to the possibility that we might be wrong about something. Uh, this, is, this is very challenging for my students who uh, often don't want to change their minds about things. Uh, but, uh, but it's a good thing to be open to change. Now, I'm not saying that you, know, you should absolutely change every day what you think about everything. But if the evidence leads you in a certain direction, you ought to be willing to change your mind, in, in my opinion. Uh, not just about religion, but about politics, about ethics, about everything in, in our existence. So, uh, well, in my younger days, uh, when uh, I was young, like some of the students here uh, among us, uh, I was a very conservative evangelical Christian. Hardcore, born again, uh, I mean, okay, to cut it short, I was a fundamentalist. <laughs> um, right, so just so we're on the same page, what do I mean by saying I was a fundamentalist? A fundamentalist. A fundamentalist is this. No fun, too much damn, and not enough mental. <laughs> right. So that's what I was. <laughs> when I was 19 and 20, I was committed to the idea that the Bible was the inerrant word of God. There were no mistakes of any kind whatsoever in the Bible. And I would go to the mat for that. Uh, and that's what I, that's what I, I really thought. Uh, when, I was, when I went to college, I didn't go to a liberal arts college like Dickinson or a, a Research One University like the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. I went to Moody Bible Institute. Uh, where, as we used to say, Bible is our middle name. <laughs> uh, so uh, this is, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was deep into this stuff. So, uh, so as I got older, I started changing my views. <laughs> I, I took Greek in college and started reading the New Testament in Greek. I took Hebrew in seminary, started to read the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew, and I started studying. I started finding things that I hadn't expected to find, and I started changing my views. Um, so, uh, 
I'm not, I, I don't think everybody should think what I think about everything, but I think that there are reasons for assuming that this older view of mine that the Bible's inerrant with no problems in it is itself a problematic view, and you'll see why in, in this lecture. Related to this is that I learned different ways to read the Bible from the way that I used to read the Bible, and most people haven't thought very much about how to read the Bible. Uh, let me mention three ways to read the Bible. The first way is what I call the Ouija board approach. So this is the way that a lot of people read the Bible, which is uh, they've got a question for the day, and they open it up, and they stick their finger in, and they get a verse, and that's their answer. So this is the Ouija board approach to reading, uh, reading the Bible, and uh, some people have very good uh, luck doing that. So if that's how you want to do it, more power to you. Second way. Second way is a more common way among serious readers of the Bible, which is what I call a vertical approach to reading the Bible. So, a vertical approach to reading the Bible basically means reading the Bible like you read any other book, which is you start at the top of the page and you go to the bottom of the page, reading vertically. You go to the next page, you read from the top to the bottom, next page, top to the bottom. You go from the beginning to the end. That's a vertical reading. Now, that is uh, absolutely the way you ought to read the Bible. It's the way you ought to read any other book. I mean, if you're going to read David Copperfield, there's no other way to read the book. That's how you read the book, from top to bottom. The problem with reading the Bible that, that way and only that way is that you miss a lot, as I'll, as I'll try to show. The reason you miss a lot is this. You, you read the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, and you start at the top and you go to the bottom. So it's, it's about the life of Jesus, his miracles, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. All right, good. Then you go to the next gospel, Mark. And it's about the life of Jesus, his miracles, his teachings, his death and resurrection. And it sounds a lot like Matthew. Then you read Luke. Life of Jesus, miracles, death, resurrection. It's, it's a lot like Matthew and Mark. They, also, they, they just seem alike. And then you read John, and it's, it's kind of different, but it's basically the same thing. The life of Jesus, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. It, they all sound alike because of the way you're reading them. There's another way to read the, uh, the New Testament that I call a horizontal reading. A horizontal reading. In a horizontal reading, you go, don't go from the top of the page to the bottom. You don't go from the beginning to the end. You, uh, you read across, which means you put Matthew, Mark, and Luke in columns next to each other and you read a story in Matthew, then you read the same story in Mark and the same story in Luke, and you compare the stories. When you read the New Testament that way, the Gospels that way, it's very surprising what you'll find. What you end up finding is that these three, they may sound alike when you read them vertically, but they sound very different when you read them horizontally. You find differences. Now, my, uh, I tell my students, they don't need to take my word for this. Just do it. Pick any story in the Gospels and read it horizontally and find the similarities and the differences and figure out what to do about that. So that's what I call a horizontal reading. It's not the only way you should read the New Testament Gospels, but it's one of the ways to read them, and I think it's a useful way to read them. This lecture will be presupposing a kind of horizontal reading of the, of the Gospels. Uh, in order to show that, in fact, these books cannot be inerrant because there are discrepancies between the, these Gospels that you cannot reconcile. 
that you wouldn't notice if you read them vertically, but only if you read them horizontally. I'm going to try and demonstrate that to you. And the reason it matters is, if you have two sources that are, that are describing a historical event, and the two sources are at odds with one another, they both can't be historical. They, can't be, they both can't be right historically. They might be valuable, they might be telling different stories, and their different stories might be worth knowing, and it might be religiously significant that Mark has one point of view and Luke has a different point of view, but if you're interested in the, in the historical question about what really happened, if you have two eyewitnesses to an event and they contradict each other, they both can't be right. It's just the reality of the thing. So, uh, well, all right. So, uh, when I was in graduate school, I, I went to Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, to do my graduate work because I was interested in uh, the Greek New Testament and the, the world expert on Greek, New, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament happened to teach at Princeton Theological Seminary. So that's the only reason I went there. It was a Presbyterian seminary, but I knew nothing about that uh, when I applied. I just knew that th this expert happened to teach there and I wanted to study with him, so I went there. And um, I started finding... I mean, I, I knew that my professors there, they were, not, they were not evangelical Christians. They were very learned men, and they were, uh, they were all men, in fact, now that I think about it. Uh, and they were, um, they were church people, committed to the church, but they weren't evangelical. They, they, they didn't think that the Bible was inerrant. And whenever they would talk about these big differences between Mark and Matthew, I would think, well, actually, that's not such a big deal. Uh, but what got me eventually that led me away from being an evangelical Christian were the little differences that I couldn't reconcile. So let me just point out a couple like really small differences just to show you the kind of thing I'm talking about. So you can do this yourself. Read the story of the healing of Jairus' daughter in Mark 5 and in Matthew 9. So the story is this. In Mark 9... There's a man named Jairus who's a leader of the synagogue who comes up to Jesus and says, my daughter is ill on the point of death. Could you come heal her? Uh, Jesus agrees to go, but before he can get there, uh, he gets interrupted. Something else happens. Somebody else interrupts him, and he's delayed. And then once this other thing gets taken care of, uh, the people from the house come and say, it's too late. She's died. And Jesus says, don't worry. And he then goes and, uh, and goes to the house. Everybody's weeping and mourning and carrying on. He says, he takes the father and mother and three of his disciples, goes in, and he raises her from the dead. Okay, it's a beautiful story, uh, Mark chapter 5. Uh, terrific story. When you read the same story in Matthew chapter 9, Jairus comes to Jesus and he says, my daughter has died. Can you come and do something about it? Okay, now, you say, who cares? I mean, you know, in one she was, she, she was sick but not dead, and the other she's dead when he comes. Well, the thing is, it's a discrepancy. It can't be both ways. I confronted somebody with this once, uh, a, a scholar who was uh, committed that there could be no mistakes in the Bible, and he told me, well, no, it's very simple. He raised her twice. All right, he raised her time. But you think, well, okay, it's just a little, it's such a picky and little thing. Okay, right, but the thing is this. Uh, this is how I tell, this is what I tell my students. I say, look, you're, you're a detective and there's been a homicide and you go to the scene and there's a man who's dead on the floor and there's a pool of blood and you start looking for little clues. You look for a, a, a fingerprint and you look for a, a hair and somebody says, 
what are you doing? You're looking for a hair. There's a dead body here. Well, yes, but to solve the crime, you've got to find something small. So, uh, so it is with the Bible. If you want to know what the Bible is, sometimes you have to look for small things. Give me a second really small thing. Peter's denials. In Mark chapter 14, at the Last Supper, Jesus tells Peter, uh, Peter says he's going to stand by him no matter what, and Jesus says to him, truly I tell you, before the cock crows twice this evening, you will deny me three times. And it happens. You read the same story in Matthew chapter 26, and Jesus says something slightly different. He says, truly I tell you, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Huh. Now, is it before the cock crows, or is it before the cock crows twice? So, uh, and, and when you read these accounts, Peter actually denies Jesus to different people. So, what do you do with this? So, when I was at, when I was at my Moody Bible Institute, I bought a book that I thought was rather clever, uh, which took the four Gospels and smashed them together into one big Gospel. Uh, this book was called The Life of Christ in Stereo. <laughs> it was actually more than stereo, but that's what they called it, The Life of Christ in Stereo. And so how does he solve this problem? Before the cock crows, before the cock crows twice, very simply, Peter denied Jesus six times. Three times before the cock crowed, and three more times before the cock crowed twice. Easily solved. <laughs> All right, so what you've done, you've written your own gospel. None of the gospels say you denied him six times. That's in your gospel, the one you just wrote. But it's not in any of these guys. So, okay, so these are they're little things. But sometimes all you need is a chink in the armor before you realize you got a problem. And for me, uh, when I was an evangelical, it's, it's these little chinks in the armor that, that made me realize that my view of the Bible was probably wrong. And that if there are little discrepancies, what's to say there aren't big discrepancies? And what's to say that, in fact, the overall portrayals of Jesus in different Gospels are at odds. Well, okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. Let me talk about what I would consider to be uh, bigger discrepancies that probably matter to more of us. All four Gospels narrate that Jesus uh, was crucified by Pontius Pilate, that um, this happened sometime during the Jewish Passover feast, but the different Gospels have different accounts that are at odds with each other in ways that I would argue are uh, impossible to reconcile. So, uh, the date of Jesus' death. Here's the question. When did Jesus die? Thank you. It depends on which one you read. This, this is a simple question that should have a simple historical answer, but in fact, it turns out that our different Gospels give a different date for the death. So, uh, Mark is our first Gospel. Uh, and Mark and John both, who, John is our last gospel, Mark is our first gospel, both of them agree that, agree that Jesus was killed sometime during the Passover festival in Jerusalem. So let me say something about the Passover feast for those of you, those of you who are not up on your Hebrew Bibles. Um, so the way it works is this. We're talking like, you know, 1,300, day, 1300 years earlier <laughs> in the days of Moses, in uh, the Hebrew Bible, according to the book of Exodus. Uh, the children of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and God has raised up a savior, Moses, in order to deliver his people from their slavery in Egypt. 
Uh, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh let my people go. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, no. Uh, and so uh, this happens a few times, and then, then uh, God says, okay, we're going to get serious, and he enables Moses to perform the ten plagues against the Egyptians. Uh, now, when I was a kid, this is my favorite Bible story, uh, which uh, should have indicated to my mother that there was something wrong with me. <laughs> uh, but uh, I loved this thing, you know, the frogs and the blood and all the, you know, whatever. I mean, just, it was great. So uh, the, the tenth plague, the tenth plague is the worst of all. Every time he does a plague, he says, let my people go. No, he's not going to do it. So the tenth plague is going to be the worst of all. On, in the tenth plague, it gets really serious. God tells Moses that the angel of death is going to come and kill every firstborn child of the Egyptians. So for the children of Israel to escape this onslaught, every family is supposed to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood from the lamb and spread it on the doorposts and the lintel of the house they're in. And then when the angel of death comes, the angel will see the blood on those houses and pass over those houses to the houses that don't have the blood and kill the firstborn child in those houses. And so that's why it's called Passover. Well, so it happens. Moses tells the children of Israel what to do. They sacrifice the lambs. They, they put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. They eat a quick meal. It's a quick meal because they know they're going to get kicked out of Egypt and they're not going to have any time for the yeast to work. And so they eat unleavened bread. And they, uh, so it goes on like this. And they, they, uh, the, uh, they spread the, the, the blood, they eat the meal, the angel of death comes and passes over the house of the Israelites, goes to the house of the Egyptians, and kills every firstborn of the Egyptians. Pharaoh gets fed up, sends the uh, children of Israel out, they escape, then Pharaoh changes his mind, he gets his army, chases them, they go to the Red Sea, you've seen the Charlton Heston do it, uh, Moses puts his uh, staff across, parts the Red Sea, they go on dry land, Moses puts his staff back, Red Sea returns, and kills all the Egyptians. So, it's a great story, great story. So, every year, every year, Moses was commanded that the children of Israel are to remember this event, to commemorate this event every year by having a special meal. So that's 1,300 years before Jesus. In the days of Jesus, this was an annual festival, just as it is today. Jews, of course, continue to celebrate the Passover and have a Passover Seder every year. Uh, in Jesus' day, the way to celebrate it big time was to come to Jerusalem. The reason was because as Judaism developed, the only place where animals could be sacrificed to God were, uh, was in the Jewish temple that was in Jerusalem. And so if you wanted to go all out, you would go to Jerusalem and, and buy a lamb there, have it sacrificed by the priest, and the way it worked is you would you'd prepare for the special meal on the day of preparation for the Passover. You would take the lamb to the temple, sacrifice, you'd take the carcass home, you'd cook the meat, you'd prepare the food, you'd get your unleavened bread, you'd get your wine ready, there's four cups of wine to be drunk at the meal, there's other special foods to be eaten at the meal. Now, the only thing tricky in what I'm going to tell you, this is, this is uh, the one point at which you need to pay attention, is remember how Jewish reckoning determines when the next day begins. Today, still today, Sabbath, which is Saturday, begins Friday night. Because in Jewish reckoning, uh, the day begins when it gets dark. And so Sabbath dinner, the Shabbat dinner uh, today, is, is Friday night. Even the Sabbath is Saturday. Well, the day begins when it gets dark. Okay? 
And that was the way it was in the ancient world too. So you prepare the meal during the day of preparation for the Passover. When it gets dark, it's the next day and you eat the meal. So the evening, the, the nighttime begins the day instead of ends the day. So you eat the meal and when you're eating it, that's the Passover day. You go to bed, you get up the next morning, it's still the Passover day until it gets dark. That's the day after Passover. So it goes, okay? So that's the setup uh, for what's happening in uh, Passover in Jesus' day. Our earliest narrative about Jesus' death is the Gospel of Mark, and Mark explicitly tells us when Jesus was killed. So in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, the disciples asked Jesus, where do you want us to, to prepare the Passover for you? And Jesus tells them uh, where he wants them to prepare it, and they prepare it. At the meal, Jesus takes the symbolic foods of the Passover, the, uh, the unleavened bread, he breaks it, and he says, this is my body that's given for you. He takes one of the cups of the wine, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He instills new significance in these already symbolically significant foods. He institutes the Lord's Supper. Uh, after supper, Jesus goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He is uh, arrested. Judas comes with the troops. Judas betrays him. The troops arrest him. Uh, after, he's eaten this, after he's eaten the Passover meal, Jesus then spends the night in jail, and we're told in Mark 15, 25, that he's condemned to death by Pilate, and he's crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. So Jesus in Mark's gospel, it, it, is, uh, it is unambiguous. Jesus is executed on the day of Passover, the morning after the meal was eaten. Okay, so that's, uh, it's, it's really uh, fairly straightforward. Now, the Gospel of John is our latest narrative of Jesus' uh, death, and it also explicitly dates when it happened. It's odd that in John's Gospel, the disciples do not ask, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? That's not found in John. Jesus has a meal with his disciples, his la the last meal, but he doesn't say anything about taking the bread, this is my body, or the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus goes out afterwards, after this meal, which is not said to be a Passover meal. He's, uh, Judas comes, betrays him, he's arrested. Jesus spends the night in jail. And then we're told that Jesus was crucified after noon, on the day of preparation for the Passover. John 19, 14. Wait a second. The day of preparation for the Passover. In Mark's gospel, Jesus lived through that day. They prepared the Passover. He ate at night and he died the next, mor the, the next morning. But not in John. In John's gospel, Jesus dies the day before he dies in Mark's gospel. Now, in both Gospels, it's a Friday. It's just that Mark thinks the Sab that, that, uh, th that, that Friday he died was the Passover. And in John, it's the day before Passover. Okay, Because Pas Passover, you know, some, some festivals fall on the same day every year. And some festivals fall on different days. Like Christmas, well, you know, you're not sure which day it's going to be. Well, so they have, they have Passover on different days. But... It doesn't make it doesn't work because there it's different. Jesus dies on the day of preparation in John. Now, why is that? Well, I think I know why it is. This is not my theory. This has been around for years and years and years. John's gospel is the only gospel 
that identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist sees Jesus, first chapter of John, sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Five verses later he says it again. Behold the Lamb of God. In John's gospel, Jesus is the Lamb of God. And when does Jesus die? He dies on the day that the lambs are slaughtered. He dies on the day and, in fact, at the same hour at the, at the hands of the same people, the priests, the Jewish priests, who sacrificed the lambs. Why? Because for John, Jesus is the lamb. And so John changes a historical datum in order to make a theological point. That kind of thing happens all over the map in the New Testament. So if you have a historical question, what day did Jesus die? Well, it depends which gospel you read. And so if you're a historian, then you've got to figure out what to do about that, that you've got two accounts that are at odds with one another. I'll give you a second example. I'll move from the death of Jesus to the birth of Jesus. As it turns out, uh, the birth of Jesus is found in only two of our gospels, uh, in Matthew and in Luke. The Gospel of Mark begins with Jesus as an adult, uh, and uh, he gets baptized by John, the first thing that happens in Mark's Gospel. John's Gospel also begins with Jesus as an adult. When Jesus shows up, he's an adult. Um, Matthew and Luke tell us the story of Jesus' birth, and it's the familiar story that is celebrated every Christmas. Uh, every, in December, every year, you, you see the Christmas pageant. What people generally have not known or noticed is that Matthew actually tells a different story from Luke, and Luke tells a different story from Matthew. So, uh, right, this is going to be a lot. Good thing you're not taking notes. Right. Um, if you were taking notes, what I would tell you to do is to read through Matthew's gospel and simply list everything that happens, and here's, here's my list. I mean, you can, you can do this yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. This is, this is what you'll find. In, uh, in Matthew's gospel. So uh, Mary and Joseph are said to be espoused, to be married, uh, but then Mary is found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph uh, thinks that uh, something has gone very wrong here and wants to divorce her. He thinks that somebody else has gotten her pregnant, but Joseph learns in a dream that, in fact, uh, this uh, child has been given by the Holy Spirit, and so they get married. That's chapter 1 of Matthew. Chapter 2, Jesus is said to be born, and then wise men come uh, from the east. <laughs> okay. Every time I every time I go through this, I, I remember. Uh, I'm sorry. This is a tangent, but uh, it always hits my head every time I say. It. So, do y'all know the game Bible trivia? You know. Uh, so, there, when Trivial Pursuit came out in the 1970s, y'all know the Trivial Pursuit, surely. Well, when Trivial Pursuit came out, uh, a group of fundamentalists put out a game Bible trivia, and on the cover of this, it says, "Where trivia is not trivial." <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so. Uh, so I, I'm actually, I'm pretty good at this game. <laughs> um, and the only time I lost, a friend of mine, I've got a friend who teaches New Testament in Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount. And uh, we were in graduate school together, New Testament, doing New Testament PhDs. And the only time I lost was playing this friend of mine, Jeff Seiker. So, uh, so the deal is this. Uh, we were neck and neck. And I, so whoever gets the next card right wins the game. And so it's my turn. And the card that he pulls for me to answer the question is, from what direction did the star shine that led the wise men to Jesus? 
Now, I'm thinking, this is a trick question. These are fundamentalists who put this thing together. So the wise men are coming from the east, and they're following the star. So from what direction did the star shine? It, shone, shine, it was shining from the west. So I say, from the west. Turns it over. Nope, from the east. No, it's not. They were in the east. He said, no, it says right here. We saw a star shining in the east. I said, no, but that's not where the star... And so he didn't give it to me, and he won on the next card. All right, so the wise, men, the wise men who are coming from the east, following the star that's shining from the west, uh, come and um, they, they, they follow the star, and the star uh, leads them to Jerusalem, and then the star stops or disappears. They don't, they don't know what to do. So they go in and they make inquiry. Where is the king of the Jews to be born? Word gets to the king, who is the king of the Jews, Herod, that uh, these, these foreigners have come by asking where the king of the Jews is to be born. So he calls them into his court, and they tell him what they're looking for. He calls in his scripture scholars, his Jewish scripture scholars, and says, where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? And they answer, well, according to the prophets, he's supposed to be born in uh, Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says that the Savior will come from Bethlehem. So Herod goes back. He tells the wise men he's supposed to be in Bethlehem. They thank him, and Herod says, well, when, when you're when you're done worshiping him, come and tell me where he is so I can go worship him. Actually, Herod wants to kill the child because he's the king. He doesn't want some other king being born. So he's going to, so the wise men, uh, the, the star shines, uh, reappears, and it leads them to Bethlehem. And it stops over the house that Jesus is in, and the wise men uh, go in and worship him. Uh, they, uh, right, uh, they worship the child in the house, uh, they decide not to return to Herod because they're warned in a dream that he's actually out to kill the child. Herod then knows that he's been deceived by the wise men. He sends out the troops and he tells his soldiers to kill every boy two years and un under in Bethlehem according to the time that the wise men had told him that, that the star had appeared. Uh, Joseph and his family, though, uh, Joseph learns in a dream that this is going to happen, so he takes uh, Jesus and Mary, and he, he heads to Egypt. They go to Egypt, and they stay in Egypt until they hear that Herod dies. And when Herod dies, they come back, but they can't, they can't come back to Judea, where Bethlehem is, because Herod's son Archelaus is the king there. So instead of going to Bethlehem, they relocate to Nazareth. And that's where Jesus grows up, in Nazareth. Okay? That's Matthew's story. Now, that all sounds very familiar, but if you think hard about it, you know, you're missing a few things. Like, what about, like, Joseph and Mary going on a trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem? There's no room in the inn. They laid him in a manger. The shepherds, there's no shepherds. Where's all that? All of that is in the other gospel, Luke, which has none of the stories in Matthew, but has a different set of stories. So, Luke's account, Luke chapters 1 and 2. In Luke chapter 1, we begin not with something about Jesus. We have the, an angel coming uh, to announce that John the Baptist is going to be born. And after that announcement, the angel comes to Mary and announces that Jesus is going to be born by the uh, enunciation to Mary. Then you get the birth of John the Baptist, and all of that takes up chapter 1. Chapter 2. We're told, chapter 2, verse 1, two, chapter two, verse one that uh, in the days of Caesar Augustus, uh, there was a tax, and all the world had to be taxed, and everybody had to return to their ancestral home to register for this tax. 
Well, uh, and we're told this is when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And so Joseph and Mary, who are from Nazareth, make a trip to Bethlehem because Joseph is from the lineage of David, King David. Uh, King David was born in Bethlehem. Joseph is from David's family, so he has to return to Bethlehem to pay for this tax. And he takes his espoused uh, Mary with him. And as it turns out, while they're there, she goes into labor and has the child. But there's no room for them in the inn, and so the child is laid in a manger. Um, the shepherds learn about the birth of the child by an angel. Uh, they come and they worship the angel. We're told then that Jesus is circumcised eight days later. The uh, parents of Jesus take him to the temple where Jesus is recognized as being the, the Messiah that is expected by two prophets there in the angel. We're then told that they fulfilled the rites of purification. So the deal with this is, uh, in the law of Moses, in the Torah, Leviticus chapter 12, if a woman gives birth, she's ceremonially unclean. There are a number of ways to become ceremonially unclean. If you touch a dead body, if you, uh, if you uh, have a flow of blood, there are all sorts of ways you can be ceremonially unclean. Uh, and you would have to be purified so that you could worship in the temple, and you get purified by performing a sacrifice. According to Leviticus 12, 32 days after a woman gives birth, she is to sacrifice two doves or two, two small birds, and then she'll be ritually pure so that she can worship in the temple again. And that's what they do. Uh, 32 days later, they fulfill the rites of purification, and then they return to Nazareth. Now they've registered for the census. She's been purified. They go back to Nazareth. And that's the end of Luke. So uh, there are differences between these two accounts that I would not call discrepancies. They're just differences. I mean, uh, Matthew, for example, has the story of the wise men, and Luke has the story of the shepherds. Uh, Matthew has the story of them going to Egypt. Uh, Luke has the story of no room in the inn. So there are differences. Okay, so they're different. Two people tell different parts of the same story. The prob there are two problems here. One is there are some differences that are impossible to reconcile between these two accounts, as I'm going to try and show. And the second is there are historical implausibilities about both accounts. So first, about what's hard to reconcile. Uh, one is a little bit trickier to get at than the other, but if you read Matthew's account and ask yourself, what is Joseph and Mary's hometown, you might be surprised. If you read it carefully, lock out Luke, pretend Luke doesn't, just read Matthew. It looks like their hometown is Bethlehem because... There's nothing about them traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They're in Bethlehem when Jesus is born. The wise men come. And when the wise men come, Herod finds out how, how long ago was this child born, so I know how old the children are that I'm supposed to kill in Bethlehem. We saw the star two years ago. So he kills every, star, every child two years and under. Well, if Jesus was born last week, even dumb Roman soldiers can figure out that he's not toddling around the yard someplace. So, but... They've been there for a couple years. That's why when the wise men come, they come to him in a house. They don't come to him in a stable. It says in a house. But there's even better evidence that Bethlehem is understood to be their hometown by Matthew, which is when they come back from Egypt, where do they want to go? They initially want to go to Judea because that's where they're from, but they can't, which is where Bethlehem is. But they can't locate there because Archelaus is the king, so they have to relocate to Nazareth, which is 120 miles further north. So 
they want to return to Bethlehem because that's their hometown. So it looks, it looks pretty clear that in Matthew, the hometown is Bethlehem. In Luke, it's clearly Nazareth. Okay, so well, that's a difference. But there's another difference that I think is really impossible to reconcile, which is this. According to Matthew, when Joseph is warned, he flees to Egypt with his child and, and wife. Well, if that's true, how can Luke be right that 32 days after the birth, they returned to Nazareth? I mean, how, they'd be in Egypt, or they'd be, no, they'd be on their way to Egypt. It takes a long time to walk to Egypt. You just can't, you know, buy a plane ticket at the last minute. I mean, you, you got to walk there. And so we're talking about, I mean, so you can't reconcile these two, I don't think. Um, there are also historical implausibilities about both of them. I mean, the, the account in Matthew is just, I mean, this idea of a star leading them to a house. I tell my students someday, go out on a starry night, look up in the sky and say, which house is that star over? Well, you can't, stars don't stop over houses. And so, okay, so, uh, and Luke, Luke, ay, 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 Luke, okay, so, the entire world has to register for a tax. And so Joseph goes to ancestor, his ancestral home, Bethlehem, where David was from. The whole world, okay, so they're not talking about China, but they're presumably, it's under Caesar Augustus, so they're saying the entire Roman world. Everybody in the Roman world is registering for a tax. There is no reference to any historical source about this tax that everybody had to register for. And Joseph goes to Bethlehem because his ancestor David is from there. David lived a thousand years earlier than Joseph. Now, suppose Congress changes its mind and decides we all have to be taxed more, not less. And, but they're going to institute a new tax, and for this tax, to register for this tax, you have to go to your ancestral home from a thousand years ago. Where are you going to go? And everybody in the empire is doing this? And there's no reference to it anywhere? Like, it didn't make it into the newspaper? So just imagine the massive migrations and the bureaucratic headaches and so on. And so it just... It, there's no reference to this tax. This tax didn't happen. Why does Luke say the tax happened? Because he has to get Jesus born in Bethlehem, even though he knows he came from Nazareth. Well, he's from Nazareth. Yeah, but he was born in Bethlehem. Well, how'd that happen? Well, there was this tax, you see. Matthew has the same goal. He gets Jesus born in Bethlehem, even though he knows he came from Nazareth. But in Matthew's case, he does it completely different in ways that is at odds because they relocate to Nazareth. So my point is, these two stories are at odds with each other and they don't work, neither one of them works historically. There are even bigger differences among our Gospels. You might say all these things are just kind of little picky and things. Well, I don't know. They seem kind of big to me, but if they don't to you, that's fine. There are bigger differences. For example, different empathy, em emphases. Here's one. This doesn't involve, this one does not involve discrepancies. It doesn't involve any contradictions or anything. It's just a difference that I think is really important and that people miss when they read the Gospels vertically instead of horizontally. What was Jesus' demeanor going to his death? Mark's Gospel tells a very vivid and gripping story filled with pathos. In Mark's account, Jesus is put on trial before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers in two words in Greek, su leges, you say so. 
That's not clear. Does that mean yes? Does it mean no? Does it mean maybe? That's all Jesus says. He's condemned to death. He's led off to be crucified. He doesn't say anything the whole way. He gets to the place of crucifixion. They nail him to the cross, and he's silent the whole time. While he's hanging on the cross, everybody mocks him. The Roman soldiers mock him. People passing by mock him. Both robbers crucified with him mock him. Both of them mock him in Mark's gospel. Jesus is quiet the whole time. It's as if he's in shock and doesn't understand why this is happening to him. And at the end, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies. That's Mark's account. This account of Jesus wondering why he has to do this. And why has God himself forsaken him like everyone else has forsaken him? He's been betrayed. He's been denied. He's, he's been mocked by everybody until even God himself. That's, that's Mark's portrayal. Very powerful. Luke has a completely different portrayal that you wouldn't notice unless you read it horizontally. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is condemned by Pontius Pilate. He's going off to be crucified, but he's not silent. In Luke's gospel, Jesus sees some women weeping by the side of the road. He turns his head to them and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the fate that's to befall you. He's more concerned about these women than he is about himself. In Luke's gospel, he arrives at the place of crucifixion. They nail him to the cross, and he's not silent. He, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus isn't in doubt here. He knows what's happening. He knows why it's happening. He knows God's on his side. While he's hanging on the cross, in Luke's gospel, Jesus actually has an intelligent conversation with one of the people being crucified. One of the robbers mocks Jesus. The other guy says, tells him to be quiet because Jesus hasn't done anything to, do, to deserve this. He turns his head to Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus knows what's happening to him. He knows why it's happening to him. He knows what's going to happen to him after it happens to him. He's going to wake up in paradise and this guy's going to be with him. And most telling of all, at the very end, instead of crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't cry that in Luke's gospel. Instead, he prays, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And he dies. He knows he's in God's hand until the very end. This is a Jesus who's calm and in control, who understands what's happening to him, unlike the Jesus of Mark. Now, what people do is they take... Mark's portrayal of Jesus, and they take Luke's portrayal of Jesus, and they smash them together. And then you throw in Matthew, and then you throw in John, and you get the seven last words of the dying Jesus, which you will find in precisely none of the Gospels. You've taken what Jesus says in all the Gospels, and what he does in all the Gospels, and you smash them together into one meta-Gospel, and that meta-Gospel is your Gospel. It's the Gospel that you wrote. Because it's not a gospel of the New Testament. And when you do that, you completely miss the point of each of the four. Each of these four has its own point, And you miss it when you pretend they're all saying the same thing. You've robbed each author of his own integrity as an author. I think that's a bad idea. Uh, and this is one instance of it. 
Another instance that is even more important, I think. This will be my last instance. What does Jesus say about himself? In the Gospel of John, Jesus claims to be God. Jesus claims to be God in John's Gospel. John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus is talking to a group of Jews. They mention Abraham, uh, the father of the Jews who lived 1,800 years earlier. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. He existed before Abraham, and he says, I am, which, if you know your Hebrew Bibles well enough, that's the name God gave to Moses. When Moses said, before he went to perform these plagues against Pharaoh, Moses said, what is your name? God says, I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. I am that I am. That was God's name. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. The Jewish opponents know exactly what he's saying. They take up stones to execute him for blasphemy. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Um, John 14, verse 9, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In chapter 17, Jesus prays and he says, Father, grant me the glory that I had with you before the world came into existence. He was with God before the universe was made. At the end of the gospel, the gospel uh, story of doubting Thomas, where Thomas sees Jesus after the resurrection and bows down before him, my Lord and my God. In John's gospel, Jesus is portrayed as God, and he calls himself God. And you don't find that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. At all. You don't find those verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You don't find Jesus calling himself God in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus doesn't make self-claims to divinity in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were based on earlier sources that scholars have reconstructed. In none of these sources does Jesus call himself God. And these are the earlier Gospels. But how do you make sense of that historically? If Jesus went around calling himself God... Could a gospel writer just fail to mention that part? Like, that part wasn't important enough to point out? that It would be the most important thing of the entire ministry of Jesus. But they don't mention it. Why? Because they've never heard of that. Neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke, nor any of their sources has heard anything about Jesus calling himself God. What historical conclusion would you draw from that if the earliest sources all have one view and the much latest source has a different view? Well, probably the latest source isn't giving you, is not giving you a historical account. I don't think Jesus claimed to be God. He doesn't in our earlier Gospels. I don't think he did. He does in John. All right, let me draw three very quick conclusions. I've been pointing out that there are discrepancies and historical problems with the Gospels. Three conclusions, well, two conclusions, really, then a final statement. First, literary conclusion. These Gospels are all different. If you want to know what Mark's view of Jesus is, you will read Mark, and you will not pretend that he's the same thing as John. You won't conflate the two. Luke has its view, Matthew has its view, and they're different views. If you're going to approach these as pieces of literature, you have to read each one for what they have to say. If you're going to read one of my books, 
you should not read my book as if I'm saying the same thing that Jerry Falwell is saying. <laughs> I'm saying something else. And you should pay attention to what I have to say. If you want to know what Jerry Falwell has to say, read what Jerry Falwell has to say, but don't pretend he's saying the same thing that I'm saying. We're saying different things. Every author should have his own integrity, and given the discrepancies in the Gospels, you should let each author speak for himself. Historical conclusion. If these sources are at odds with one another about what Jesus really said and did, they all can't be right historically. Theoretically, one could be right and the other's wrong, but they all can't be right because they're at odds with each other. Historians have concluded that, in fact, none of the Gospels can be taken as a uh, sort of disinterested description of what Jesus really said and did. These Gospels are all written decades after the fact. The earliest Gospel of Mark was probably written around the year 70, 40 years after Jesus, and that's the first Gospel. John is probably written around the year 90, 95, 60 to 65 years after Jesus. These Gospels are not historical documents by people written by eyewitnesses who were there to see these things happen, who want to record history according to 21st century standards. These are first century authors. And by the way, none of them was an eyewitness. The Gospels are written in Greek. Jesus' followers were Aramaic-speaking uh, lower-class peasants from Galilee, uneducated, illiterate peasants. They couldn't write Greek. They couldn't write Aramaic. These Gospels are written by later Christians living outside of Palestine who have heard stories about Jesus and now are writing them down. And the stories have been changed in the process of the retelling. That's the historical reality, which means scholars have to devise criteria for using these Gospels to figure out what in them is actually historical or not. That's why you have scholars write books about the historical Jesus, because that's what they're doing, trying to figure out what's historical here or not, given the problems of the Gospels that I've been laying out for you. Finally, can we trust the New Testament portrayal of the historical Jesus? I am not arguing that you should throw out the New Testament. I'm not saying that the New Testament is uh, uh, you know, a, a worthless book or even a bad book or an uninteresting book. The New Testament is a fantastic book. It is the most important book in the history of Western civilization, bar none, without any close competition. It should be read. It should be studied, even if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian... The Bible is giving you theological beliefs. It's giving you religious truth. It's giving you things to think about, about your own spiritual journey, whether it's historically reliable or not. Can you trust it to give you a disinterested historical account of what actually happened? No. But meaning is not resident only in history. History is just one thing. It's what happened in the past. We find meaning in lots of things besides history. We shouldn't treat the New Testament as if it's the kind of book that it's not. It's not a 21st century objective history of what happened in the life of Jesus. These Gospels are called Gospels. The word Gospel means good news. These books are trying to proclaim their theological good news about Jesus. 
They should be read like that and not as historical documents about what really happened in Jesus' life. Thank you very much. All right, so we'll now begin our question and answer session for tonight. Uh, and the, the event is being videotaped, so either Noel or myself will bring a microphone to you if you'll just raise your hand, so thank you. Uh, you make a very good point about uh, none of the uh, supposed authors of the Gospels uh, witnessed it or were there contemporary, contemporarily with, with uh, the events. Uh, uh, Josephus was in the area at the time and published his uh, books that mentioned the uh, events that happened. Were there any, were there any other uh, records of the events of that time that have come down to us? Uh, right, so uh, yeah, Josephus, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Josephus is the most important source we have for what's happening in first century Palestine. He, uh, he was not alive during Jesus' day, but he was alive during the time the Gospels were being written. Josephus was born in the year 37. Uh, Josephus is a first century Jewish aristocrat who wrote many volumes about first century, uh, about, Pal about, about the history of, Jew history of the Jews, including first century Palestine. Uh, that we have. We have a number of his books. Um, so he's an incredibly valuable uh, witness for what's going on in Palestine. He does mention Jesus on two short occasions, two very brief occasions, uh, but he's mainly valuable not for knowing about the gospel stories as he is for knowing about what the context was within which they were happening. Right. I wonder if we could have, like, if, if you could give a microphone to somebody who's going to ask the next question so we don't have to see what I mean. So if, if people have a question you know you're going to ask next. Or not? Yes. So some some of what you discussed tonight was is uh, mentioned in Reza Aslan's uh, recent best-selling book, and I was just wondering what you thought of the historical accuracy of that book. Uh, right. So Reza Aslan, you know, his book was the number one uh, bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list until Bill O'Reilly came along. <laughs> Bill O'Reilly, there's a source you can trust on the historical Jesus. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Um, so, um, I, don't know, I don't know if you've read Bill O'Reilly's book, but I mean, O'Reilly's O'Reilly's view is that uh, the reason Jesus was opposed to the Romans is because they were so interventionist, and they their taxes were they demanded too many taxes, and so Jesus was for lower taxes and less government. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the book. Uh, right, okay, right, you're asking about Reza Aslan, right, okay, yeah, right. Uh, so Reza Aslan, uh, Reza Aslan is not a scholar of early Christianity. Uh, he's, he's not a, he doesn't have an advanced degree in New Testament or in early Christianity. He has an advanced degree in sociology of religion. Um, and he's as qualified to write about the New Testament as I'm qualified to write about the sociology of religion. I can assure you, you do not want me to write a book on the sociology of religion. Uh, his book is filled with mistakes and inaccuracies, just factual mistakes and inaccuracies about Roman history, about the New Testament, 
about the history of early Christianity. Um, the basic thesis that he advances is a thesis that he doesn't acknowledge has been around since the 1770s. Uh, the first scholar ever to write a book about the historical Jesus was, uh, was a guy named Hermann Reimarus in Germany, whose thesis is very much like uh, Reza Aslan's thesis. Uh, I'm not sure Reza Aslan knows that. Um, so um, I think it's a highly problematic thesis, but it's a defensible thesis. I don't think he defends it very well. Um, the thing about Ray Aslan's book is he, he's not a professor of, uh, no, he's not an expert in this field. He's a professor of creative writing. And he writes really well. <laughs> it's a great book to read. I mean, you want to read a good book on Jesus. I mean, this is a great book to read. But uh, I don't think it's trustworthy as a historical account. If you're interested, uh, by the way, I'm going to put in a plug right now. Uh, if somebody else, okay, good, you have a question. But first, uh, let me put in a plug right now because this brought it to mind. Um, this is unrelated to much, much of anything. I have a blog that I would like to invite all of you to consider joining. Uh, the blog is called uh, Christianity in Antiquity, the CIA. <laughs> um, so it is... It, uh, I, uh, I, I post five or six times a week, usually a thousand words a day, on issues having to do with the New Testament and early Christianity. I had about two weeks of posts on Reza Aslan's book. So for about two weeks, I you know, post about a thousand words a day, pointing out some of the problems and such. The thing about this blog is you have to pay to get on it. It's $24.95 to get on for a year. And I give every penny to charities dealing with hunger and homelessness. Uh, last year, I raised $61,000. Um, and I, I pay for the thing myself, in addition to putting in all my time on it. And uh, if, you, uh, if you would con consider getting, if you're interested in the stuff I'm talking about tonight, you can get a steady dose of this uh, every day on my blog. And, and it is, uh, it's, it's worth, you know, it's worth every penny you pay for it, and it's, it all goes to charity. But I mention this because, you know, if you want my fuller views on Reza Aslan, my blog gives, gives all that. Okay, yes, yes. Oh, that's a marvelous project, by the way. Thank you. Uh, question is, um, could you comment briefly on, uh, in some Christian circles and also among some scholars, there seems to be kind of a fixation on proving or giving evidence for the historicity of Jesus' miracles, including the resurrection. Could you comment a little bit about um, uh, what constitutes evidence for those kinds of arguments? Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's an entire, an entire yes. Okay. I, I, I will say something about it. Uh, let me say, I've got, a, I've got a book coming out next month. I devote two chapters to, to this question. Uh, my book next month, that's coming out uh, almost, almost exactly a month from now, is called How Jesus Became God. Uh, and uh, I think that the, the belief in the resurrection is absolutely fundamental to why Christians started calling him God. I don't think he thought of himself as God. I don't think his followers thought of him as God. But at the when they came to believe in the resurrection, they thought he was God. But that raises the question, what can a historian say about the resurrection? And so I devote two chapters to that. Let me just, to give you the very short story, which is probably not going to sound all that convincing because I have to condense so much. But uh, my view is that historians cannot appeal to miracle as something that happens in history. If you read historians in any other di discipline besides the New Testament, they don't do it. I mean, you know, historians are talking about World War II. They don't say that God decided the Battle of the Bulge. 
right? So why would you, I mean, why would you write a, any other history where you invoke God all the time? Well, so, but the reason is, there, there are two reasons. I'm not going to, um, I'll give you one set of reasons that historians can't and otherwise don't do that, which is this. Um, miracles are such improbable events that we call them miraculous. I mean, they're, they're really improbable. How probable is it that somebody's going to be able to walk on a lake of lukewarm water? I mean, there are six billion people in the world, and none of them can do it. So what's the chance that somebody can do it? Well, if you don't want to say it's impossible, at least you'd say it's less than one in a billion. I mean, so the chances are so infinitesimally remote that somebody could do that, that you just say it's a miracle, okay? And that's true for every miracle in the New Testament. I mean, how, how many people don't have near-death experiences, but are actually dead? I mean, dead for like days and then come back from the dead. How often does that happen? Well, no, I mean, you have near-death experiences where somebody's gone for a few hours. But I mean, for days? No. I mean, how often, is that? how often does it happen that somebody ascends to heaven? It never happens. Well, what if it does happen? It's okay. Suppose it happened. If it happened, it'd be really unlikely to have happened. <laughs> so the thing is that historians, by their very nature, try to establish what probably happened in the past. That's all we can do. It's not like doing science. If you're a scientist, you do an experiment, you control the variables, you do the experiment a bunch of times, you come to the same result a bunch of times because you control the variables, and you know next time you do the experiment, you're going to have the same result. You can't do that with history because you can't repeat the experiment. Once it happens, it's over with, it's done. And so historians have other ways of trying to figure out what probably happened in the past, but it's all probability. Some things are really probable, so probable you might as well call them a certain. UNC, my basketball team, really did beat Duke last week. <laughs> and it wasn't a miracle. <laughs> um, that's really certain. What about a game that was played 300 years ago? Well, that's harder to say what happened. I mean, what about a game played, you know, 2,000 years ago? I mean, it's really hard. It's hard to you establish levels of probability for things. And some things are virtually certain. Some things are really probable. Some things are probable. Some are pretty possible. Some are not so possible. Some are unlikely. Some are really unlikely. What are miracles? They're, like, so unlikely that they never happen. Or if they happen, they're so unlikely to have happened that the, the chances of them happening are infinitesimally remote. If the historian can only establish what most probably happened, and miracles by definition are the least probable occurrence, then historians can never show that miracles probably happened. I don't care what the Christian apologists say about this. Oh, there were eyewitnesses. They found an empty tomb. <laughs> they found an empty tomb? I mean, you bury somebody in a tomb, and they're not there three days later. Do you go around thinking they've been raised from the dead? No, you think, huh, grave robbers. Or you think, Huh, I'm at the wrong tomb. Or you, you think something, I mean, but you don't think, I mean, because the resurrection, so I think historians, by the very nature of the discipline, this, this is not based on, uh, on secular, anti-supernaturalist presuppositions, because it's the problem that all historians have, whether they're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, anything else, it's the same problem. It's got nothing to do with secular presuppositions or anti-supernaturalism. It's the nature of history. It's what we do as historians. So, yeah. 
That's, that's my I'm not denying that Jesus got raised from the dead. So, yeah, here's something that blows my students' mind. When I try to explain this to them, I tell them, history is not the past. Huh? No, history is not the past. The past is everything that happened before now. History is what we can show as having happened before now. Most of everything that happens, we cannot show happened. You can't show what my grandfather ate on March 3rd, 1951. He ate something, but it's not, a, it's not in the historical record. You have no way of accessing it. Miracles are something we have no way of accessing. So even if they're in the past, historians have no access to them. That's my view. Sorry about the long answer. Uh, do we have another? Yes. You mentioned that uh, these major conflicts generally have to do with authors and who their audiences are, really. Do you think that the minor con uh, conflicts, even the ones that you mentioned, might be the same? And I'm thinking specifically as far as somebody coming and saying, my daughter's dead versus my daughter is sick. The difference is uh, the author might be writing to someone who is expecting someone to bring someone back to life yeah. versus someone yeah. who can heal somebody. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a great example. I think, so it's, it's usually thought that Mark was the first gospel and that Matthew had Mark as one of his sources. So that Mark actually, Matthew actually had a copy of Mark that he had read and actually had in front of him because we're, they're word for word the same in places. It, I have trouble convincing my students sometimes that if you've got two documents that are word for word the same, somebody's copying somebody. <laughs> so my students don't believe me when I tell them this, so I do this little exercise with them. So I, uh, I come into class a couple minutes late, and today I'm going to talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I come in late, and I start fiddling around in front of the class. I take off my coat. I put down my bag. I take out a book from the bag. I put the book back in the bag. I put my coat back on. I mean, I, I just do stuff. And then I'm doing this stuff for a couple minutes, and I say, okay, I want everybody to take out a piece of paper and a pen, and I want you to write down everything you've seen me do since I came into class. So the class is 250 people. Everybody's writing down what they've seen me do. I say, okay, I want four volunteers. I take four volunteers. I say, okay, we're going to do a gospel comparison here. I want you to tell me whether you have a sentence that's exactly like any one of these. And I read through all four, compare the four. None of the four ever have any sentence in common. And nobody in the entire class has a sentence like any of these four. So I say, okay, now, um, what would you think if I picked up two, two of these papers and they had three sentences exactly alike? I said, somebody copied. Yeah, somebody copied. Of course they copied. How else would it happen? And I say, okay, now suppose I didn't do this today. What if I waited 40, 50, or 60 years, and I didn't ask you the eyewitnesses, I asked somebody who knew someone who once had a cousin whose, whose mother was in the, you know, in the store who heard somebody tell a story about what happened that day in class. I picked four people like that in 60 years, and they all wrote, they wrote four accounts, and three of them were word for word the same in places. What would you think then? And some kid in the back row always cries out, it's a miracle. <laughs> yes, it's either a miracle or somebody's copying somebody. <laughs> and the problem with the miracle explanation is because then you've got to deal with the differences. So, so the, the normal explanation is that Mark was first, and Matthew and Luke used Mark and copied Mark. That's why they have word for word the same. So your example is a very good one. When Mark, Matthew's copying Mark, he thinks he's going to womp the story up a bit. So Jairus doesn't come saying, my daughter's ill, and she accidentally then died. It's, my daughter's dead. Can you raise her from the dead? It makes it kind of a, more, kind of a bigger thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Right, this will be our final question tonight. 
Thank you. I'm wondering if you could say something about the letters of Paul, the ones that are established letters of Paul, and how maybe his views about uh, Christ's divinity would, you know, do we understand him as another voice in a way that is analogous to the other four Gospels? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, specifically with respect to Christ's divinity. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's a great question. Uh, so one thing that people, a lot of people don't realize or they don't, don't quite, it doesn't quite connect how significant this is, is that Paul was actually writing before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Paul's letters are the first letter, first, the first Christian books we have are, are Paul's books. Um, uh, his first letter was probably 1 Thessalonians, which is usually dated to 49 or 50. So we're talking, you know, maybe 20 years before the Gospels. So it's quite significant to know what Paul thought about all these things. Um, this book that I've just written, How Jesus Became God, for me, is, it's the most significant book I've written for me personally, both because I think it's the most important issue that I've ever dealt with. I mean, I, I think this is, the, this is, you can argue, in fact, I argue in the book, that this is one of the, the most important questions in the history of Western civilization. And I, I think I can prove it. Uh, that Because if, if Jesus hadn't become, if, if Jesus' followers hadn't thought he was God, they would have remained a group of Jews within Judaism. It's the claim that Jesus was God that separated them from Judaism. They would have been a messianic sect in Judaism. They probably would have died out. But certainly the Gentiles never would have converted massively. It's the belief that Jesus was God that started changing things completely. Um, well, if, if Gentiles didn't convert, then you wouldn't have these massive conversions leading up to the 4th century when the emperor Constantine converted. Constantine wouldn't have converted to a Jewish sect. And if Constantine hadn't converted, the Roman Empire wouldn't have converted. If the Roman Empire didn't convert, you wouldn't have the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Reformation, modernity. You wouldn't have any of it. We'd all still be pagans. Or Jews. Jews are pagans. We'd all be Jews or pagans. I'd be a pagan. <laughs> My students think I am. <laughs> but Paul is absolutely key. And one, the other reason I think this, for me, this book is so important to me is because um, I completely changed my views about some things, including Paul. I wondered, actually, it's not true. I changed my view. I guess I changed my views of Paul. I finally came to understand Paul. I've studied Paul since I was 16 years old. So for over 40 years, I've studied Paul, and I never understood his Christology, his, under, his view of Christ. I and I knew I didn't understand his Christology. I just didn't understand. I mean, I knew all the passages. I can quote them to you. I couldn't quote them all. But I, didn't, I couldn't put it all together. And finally, writing this book, I figured it out. Um, so, all right. So it's going to sound a little bit strange because it takes a while for me to prove this in the book. My, okay, my basic view is that Paul, Paul thought that, that Christ was a pre-existent divine being uh, who was... I think, I think Paul thought that Christ was the chief angel. The reason... I've got reasons for... Paul calls Christ an angel in, in Galatians 4.14. Um, and I think he thought he was a pre-existent divine being. In Philippians chapter 2... The, Philippians 2 is the passage that always confused me. Um, in Philippians 2, Paul says this. He says... He, talk, he begins by talking about Jesus Christ, and he says who, 
although he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of humans. And as a human, he subjected himself to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Paul thought that Jesus existed in the form of God before he became a human being, but he wasn't equal with God because he didn't think equality with God was something to grasp after. Unlike, say, Adam, who wanted to be like God, and so he grasped after the fruit so he could be like God, not, not Jesus. Jesus was a, a divine being who didn't strive for equality with God. Instead, he humbled himself to become a human being. He died, and because of his humility, God exalted him even more highly than he was before. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. That's a quotation from Isaiah 45 that says to Yahweh alone, to the Lord God alone, will every knee bow and every tongue confess. Paul thinks God has exalted Jesus up to his own rank. That, that Christ now is an equal with God. This is, it's an amazing view because it's a view before Matthew, Mark, and Luke who don't have that view. Uh, but so it's a very high understanding of who Christ is that I, I think that's Paul's view. So, okay, I'm out of time. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed being with you.